0: In Matthew chapter 16, we're kind of picking up in the middle of the passage that we went through last week. Though there was a verse in this passage um, that I thought deserved a little bit more attention. Um, If we remember, this passage we were talking about was Jesus. um, He was asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? Um, And they were giving him all sorts of opinions that have been given Um, by uh, people that they had heard their opinions from. Uh, But then Jesus asked point blank, who do you say that I am? Uh, Making it personal. It's like, okay, you've heard all sorts of opinions uh, about me. Um, What what do you think? Based off of the time you've spent with me? Based off of what I have said and what I have done? Who do you say that I am? (laughs) To which Peter... Um, responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, And that's really what we spent most of our time on last week. Today I want to focus a bit more on um, verses 18 and 19 um, where it says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I mean, that sounds like an awful lot of authority that he is passing off to Peter. Um, and there have been a great deal of opinions that have been formulated on, this, on these two verses. So I think it's a worthy um, cause to... Take a, take a week and sit on these and see what they say. And we'll actually see how glorifying these passages are to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Before we dive into it, let's pray and seek the Lord's wisdom on the matter. Lord, I thank you for the things that you have revealed to us. Some things very deep and heavy. Um, things, very great many things that must be searched and sought out um, through great laboring. Um, and many have lost their lives seeking these things out. Um, these things that you have simply revealed to us to see and believe, but yet people have lost their lives over it. Lord, I pray that we would take advantage of the freedom we have to seek these things out with no uh, risk to our own lives. Or should I say, there is great risk to our life for whoever would save their life would lose it. And whoever would lose their life For Christ's sake, in the Gospels, we'll save it. Lord, I pray that we would accept the risk of devoting ourselves to your word, to the revealed Messiah whom you have sent. Give us wisdom as we learn of him today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. First, we need to talk about what this rock is. This is all this is the first point where there's a lot of confusion. You are and we have to step back a second. In verse sixteen he says, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17 says, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So in these two verses, we, well, verse and a half I should say, we see that the subject matter of Christ's address is not Peter himself, but the truth that Peter's communicated. it's In Jesus' when it, when Jesus's answer, he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. So he's talking about this, meaning what Peter has just said. And then in verse 18, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. These this is are both referring back to what Peter said, the statement of Peter, not necessarily Peter himself. Um, the, that Jesus is the son of the, the Christ. He's the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's the rock upon which Christ builds his church. When Jesus is talking about a rock, he's talking about a foundation of a building. Now he's, he has Peter in front of him. He has Mount Hermon behind him. He has a temple that they're looking—the Temple of Pan, which we'll talk talk about, which was built into a cave in Mount Hermon. It was built out of beautiful marble. Um, It was a white temple, solid structure, a magnificent feature. Um, And this is all going. This is all what Jesus is looking at while he is addressing Peter. Peter's name, Petros, meaning rock. Uh, when, you petri- when a wood becomes petrified, it becomes stone. Um, I don't know if that's scientifically act- scientifically the best way of saying that. If it becomes stone or just becomes like stone, I don't know the science behind all that stuff. But, nevertheless, uh, Peter's name means rock. Um, and he's using Peter's name as a springboard to illustrate what's going to be happening with what he said. Um, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I am going to make this statement, Jesus... Well, maybe he's not making the statement. The statement itself is the foundation for what Jesus is going to accomplish. Now, when you're talking about foundations, what are you talking about? Talking about the first thing that has to be laid if you want to build something on top of it. You know, our, you know Jayla has a little fairy garden in our, in, our, in our yard, right? You love that thing, right? But what happens if somebody just kind of nudges it? It tips over, right? It moves, it falls over, it gets um, transplanted, <laughs> right? It, it's not built on a foundation, it's not sturdy, it's not a sturdy structure, um, it's just pieces of wood and other types of things placed on top of the dirt, which there's nothing wrong with that, it's a, it's a plaything. But Christ's what Christ came to do is not present us with playthings. He is giving us something that is going to be built on a firm foundation, um, Matthew chapter seven starts in verse twenty four, saying, "Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house who has who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on a rock." And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So we are supposed to understand from this that the foundational component of the body of Christ. So he says on this rock, I will build my church which is his body, the foundational component of the entire church, the entire body of Christ, that which supports every part of it, is all that we just talked about in last week's sermon. If you want to reminisce, you can check that out online. I haven't put it online yet, but eventually. (laughs) When I put it online, you can check it out. Um, But everything that Peter said, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is actually the foundation on which everything else is supported. I mean, it seems simple. And really, it is kind of simple, but it is also extremely profound. I'm not going to go into it today because we did that last week. But that supports every part of the church, the body of Christ. And if the clear syntax of this passage isn't enough... To talk about what Christ is talking about. That Christ is not talking about Peter. Peter is not being made the head of the church. Peter is not being made the foundation of the church. The syntax, the the wording supports that. It makes it impossible to believe that. If that's not enough, Christ adds um, in in the middle of verse 18. On this rock, I will build my church. He's not saying, Peter, you're going to build my church with this. Jesus says, I will build my church. This is a very important concept that we see all throughout the scriptures. Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16 says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy it. I will feed them in justice. <laughs> How many eyes are in there? I didn't count it. I, 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 I. God is making it explicitly clear that He is going to be the one establishing His people. 1 Timothy 2 3 through 7 says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man. Christ Jesus, one mediator, one in between. Okay, we don't have all sorts of in betweens between man and God. We have one Jesus Christ who is our reconciler. And what gives Jesus the right to be the mediator between God and men? Well, verse six, who gave himself as the ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Nobody else is the ransom for our sin. Nobody else paid the price that could reconcile us back to God. Only Jesus did that. Therefore, He is the only one who can be our stand between, between man and God. And then then Paul, who wrote this book in verse Timothy, adds right after this, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am the telling the truth and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. So now Paul is still bringing himself into the conversation. Now, what right does Peter does Paul have to say? He just said Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. He's the only one who can establish a relationship with man and God. Now, how is it that Paul has the right to come into this conversation? Didn't we just see in Ezekiel that God was going to do it all? And God was going to renew his relationship to restore the relationship between him and his people. He was going to be the one getting his sheep, gathering them, making his flock again. Well, we see that in, what, in, in Paul's address that preachers, ministers, whatever you want to call them, they're not mediators between God and man. Preachers, even apostles. Paul was an apostle. They're simple people who use the word of God To point people to the one who is the mediator between God and man, which is Christ, the Son of the living God. So what a preacher's job is to do is to not be the go-between between the congregation and God. A preacher's job is to tell everybody who is the person that we should all be going to to reconcile us to God. That is the best job that a preacher of any sort can do is say, don't look to me, look to the one who actually has the authority to do something between you and God. That's the difference between a preacher and a mediator. A preacher points to the mediator who is Christ. First Corinthians three, one through twenty three, make it clear that if we want to read this, we'll. I'll read through it quickly just so that we get an idea of the language here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you want to follow along, he says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth." He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word of light or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now there's a lot in this passage and I'm just going to bullet point a few things um, in this passage that we need to see because it all revolves around the foundation of Jesus Christ and being true to the foundation that has already been laid one in this passage. We see that people are merely people and when we glorify people, we are acting in an immature unspiritual manner. That's what he's making the point of in the beginning of the chapter. If you glorify people, if you treat people like they're special, then you're acting in an immature, unspiritual manner. Special in a sense of a mediatory work between God and man. That's immature. That's unspiritual. That's milk, not meat. Number two, the best a human can be is the servant of Christ. That's the best we can be. Three, people labor for the gospel of Christ, but God is the one who makes the effective work happen. The farmer, he goes out and toils... But he doesn't actually force those seeds to grow. He prepares the land and plants the seeds. But he's not the one who makes that grow. Natural processes do that. God is the one who who brings the growth to our labors. We don't make anything grow. We don't make anything spiritually happen. God does all that. We labor like a farmer to till and to prepare and to plant. But God is the one who makes the effectual work happen. No person has the power to do that. Number four, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's pretty, that's pretty, I mean, that's the words of Paul himself, and it's pretty straightforward. That is, we can't do anything better than what Christ has already done. No measure of talent, authority, or work can by any means add to what Christ has already done. The purpose of a preacher, a minister, a gospel sharer is simply to point people to what Christ has already done. Because it was sufficient. We're not trying to fill an inadequacy or an insufficiency. Five, Verse 14, let me just read that real quick, says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Verse 14 communicates that if anyone has deviated from the foundation, That is distracting from the sufficient work of Christ, his work will be burned up. But all that a man does that follows that sure foundation will result in a reward. That this is verse chapter three is all really one big concept. It's all talking about the foundation of Christ that has been laid, and our obligation to stay to that foundation. Kirk, what happens if you build a building according to measurements that don't match the foundation? Uh, You've got a a catastrophic failure, right? That building is not going to be secure. So when we deviate in our efforts from the sure sufficiency of what Christ has already done the foundation, he has already laid, we cause a problem and that building cannot stand. Our job is to point to the sufficient work of Christ. 6. Mankind is another thing we see in this passage is that mankind is proud and to think that it can some can add something to what God has done. This is th- this is the end of the chapter what he's talking about. Such a thing is foolishness. We are wise to abandon any thought, action or tradition that alters or distracts from the work that God himself has done. Matthew chapter 16. So we've been talking about the foundation. That sure, strong, sufficient work that God himself has done. He says in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that is, the church that Christ will build. And it's interesting, historically, we see him um, talking again about um, his location in Caesarea Philippi. There were temples built into the sides of Mount Hermon in Caesarea Philippi to all sorts of gods, but there was one particular one that was important. It was the Temple of Pan. It was set, it was built into the, a cave that went under Mount Hermon. And it was said to have a recess in that cave that was believed to be the gateway to hell. Right there where Jesus was. There's was a cave. The temple was built in the cave. And that cave was supposed to be the entrance. Where you could find the gates to hell. There was a, a bottomless pit, so sort, to sort of speak. Um, uh, you dropped a stone down into, this, down into this pit and you just never heard it hit the bottom. That's just, and they believed that those were the gates to hell. <laughs> On top of that, uh, Mount Hermon traditionally in that day was believed to be the place where Lucifer and his angels landed when they were cast out of heaven. Um, so there's all sorts of tradition revolved around this place where Jesus is that Jesus is actually using to springboard into the conversation he's having with his disciples. When Jesus was speaking, they were looking at a landscape that was spread with beautiful white temples, marble temples built into, the ga- built into a cave of the gates of hell. Jesus was not necessarily condemning this notion In this passage, but he was using it to communicate that the powers of the devil cannot overthrow this thing that God is doing through Christ Jesus. This bride of Christ, this flesh of his own flesh, that which God is joining together cannot be undone by man or devilish power even though the devil tries with all his might. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. He's he's telling us these things because Satan is trying to crumble God's church. But Jesus is saying, nothing is going to crumble my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's my bride. It is the flesh of my own flesh. What God has put together, let no man Put asunder. That's a reference to marriage, but that's exactly what Christ thinks of his bride, his church. He is marrying himself to it, and there will be nothing that comes between him and his bride. Husbands, we understand that. There is nothing that is going to come between us and our bride. And that's what Christ thinks of his church. Now, to address the statement in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this is a particularly confusing passage. Um, I feel like the previous matter that we've been discussing is easy compared to this one. Um, The question is, what authority exactly is Christ giving Peter or whoever it is he's talking about? Um, First, I think it's important to point out That Christ has been using. Kids. It's important to point out that Christ has been using the actual to represent the spiritual. So, Peter, rock, temple of Pan, church, Herman, gates of hell, you know, these types of comparisons, he's using something actual to illustrate something spiritual. And I would pose that he's still in this mindset when he's addressing Peter as the recipient of this blessing. I would pose that he is talking about the authority of the church that he is establishing. Not just Peter, because one day Peter is going to die, right? Peter's going to be gone. So what happens then? This blessing is gone? Well, if Peter was the sole recipient, then the blessing would die with Peter. We see nowhere in Scripture... Perhaps this is more importantly, we see nowhere in Scripture where Peter is referenced as or claims to be the universal church head that has this special power. Peter just doesn't talk like that. And nobody talks about Peter like that. In fact, Paul... I'm not going to tell the story, but there's a story in which Paul threw Peter under the bus in in an attempt to make sure the Corinthians acknowledged Paul's authority to preach the Gospel. You know? (laughs) You know? It's, have you ever been thrown under the bus? It's kind of embarrassing. Well, Paul did that to Peter. If Peter was the head of the church, Paul would have no right to do that. Now, the New Testament just not, does not support any notion that Peter was the head of the early church. Perhaps a local church, but not the church at large. If anybody had a, 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 a huge headship of the church, it was Paul. We see it in the book of Acts. He was in charge of, the, of a vast network of missionary work. Um, Nevertheless, Paul wasn't around when Jesus was talking here in Matthew chapter 16. I mean, he was around, just not in the story. My belief is that Jesus was inviting the church into his own authority to spread his kingdom throughout the world. And to lay a scriptural foundation, uh, one important element of the Bible that we can't really get into now in full detail, that we should get into at some point, is that the Bible is a story of God's redemptive plan. And things all things happen progressively throughout this book. Sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that each book is just an individual book that has a moral lesson, some good stories that we can use um, as we try to live life the best that we can live it. That's how a lot of people read the Bible. It's just a bunch of segmented books that each give us a moral lesson to learn from. Some are harder to find than others. Um, but that's not the case. Uh, each book is not an individual book that's isolated in its own place and time with its own individual moral compass. Every book and portion of each book plays a part in the historical redemptive, redemption narrative in which God reconciles the world to himself. Every single book of the Bible somehow, in some way, to some degree, pushes the storyline of God reconciling the world back to himself in motion. From beginning to end. It's all a storyline. It actually does read like a novel if you know what you're looking for. The hard part is knowing what you're looking for. And that's what most of us are untrained in looking for. That's why we don't really see that uh, while we're reading the Scriptures. But let's for an example that actually relates to what we're talking about today. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In that passage, we see the sovereign creator God, creating man in his own image, and giving mankind a portion of his own sovereignty. He blessed them, and told them to spread throughout the earth, claiming it, mile by mile, and establishing ownership of it. He is inviting the man that he just created, mankind that he just created into his sovereignty. God is still the sovereign Lord and creator of the universe but he's inviting man to, to enjoy a portion to enjoy a fellowship in that sovereignty. Now when he, when he established this Adam was the only person there. But he's giving the charge to mankind when Jesus is saying, Peter, I give you the keys of heaven and hell. He's talking to Peter, but I believe he's inviting the whole church into this blessing. In Matthew 28, we see Christ who just died and rose again, establishing not just a new covenant, but a new creation, which we can establish in the book of Romans, which we won't take the time to do right now. When Christ died and rose again, He brought the new creation. Behold, the old is gone. The new has come. He's establishing a new creation by His death and resurrection. Becoming the second Adam. And in Matthew 28, we see Him saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. So Christ is... Is claiming all creation, all creative authority everywhere, reminiscing with Genesis chapter 1. Go there. You, now he's talking to his disciples. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He told Adam and Eve, "Be fruitful and multiply. Go spread out. Go claim this earth mile by mile." And in the new creation, Jesus is saying, "I have all the, all sovereign authority, and now I'm telling you to take a portion of this and go spread throughout the earth, taking the message of my gospel everywhere to every creature on the planet." Do we see the storyline? shifting in the New Testament we see elements of it from the very beginning now resurfacing in a more spiritual eternal kingdom sense and we see Paul summarizing last week if you remember we talked about Matthew uh, Romans chapter 10 Um, the Gospel, he summarized by saying, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. God has shared His authority with the church so that the church will go throughout the world bringing people into the submission of faith to Christ Jesus who is the sovereign Lord of all creation. John 14.12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He's inviting us into his very own power and authority. Matthew 24, 14 says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world, whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come again. He's sending out his disciples throughout the whole world to claim dominion of it for God, not not in a slavery, you know, man, man-centered, domineering way, but in a Christ-centered, spreading the gospel way. Bringing all people into the submission of the faith. The Heidelberg Catechism, which was and is a useful reformed training tool written in 1563 and used throughout Protestant churches from then up until today. It was actually something, one of the sources that I used when we were going through catechisms, you know, what is that? A year, year and a half ago. Um, but he, the Catechism, it um, number Catechism number eighty-three says the question: What is the? What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? To which the answer is: The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and closed to unbelievers. Question eighty-four: How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Answer, In this way, that according to the command of Christ, it is proclaimed and openly witnessed to those who should sincerely believe, one and all, that as often as they accept with true faith the promise of the gospel, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on on the contrary, to all unbelievers and hypocrites, that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation abide on them, so long as they are not converted." according to which witness of the Gospel will be the judgment of God, both in this life and in that which is to come. So when he's saying, I will give you the keys of the Kingdom of Heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in Heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed by Heaven, what we've been kind of seeing through other portions of Scripture that relate to this, is that to open the Kingdom of Heaven to somebody is to share the Gospel with them that they might walk through the door. To keep the door closed is to not share the gospel with them. Or, as the Heidelberg Catechism responds, it would be church discipline. Church discipline meaning um, if there's a person who says that they are a believer, but yet they don't believe like a believer, they don't act like a believer, nothing about them actually represents a believer, the church has the right to, to point out to them, you are actually not a believer because you have no fruits of being a believer. In that regard, the church has given the authority to determine that these people are not believers. Now, that does not make the person an unbeliever. That does not make the person unsaved. It is merely recognizing and communicating the spiritual reality that this person may say whatever they want to say, but they're not actually a believer. So in that regard, we shut the kingdom of heaven to them. Not in the sense that they will never be able to convert, but in the sense that they need to repent and actually believe the gospel and follow their sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. That makes sense. And that's another. I mean, that's another part of um, of binding on the earth. Is it's not just the church, but like also um, the ministry of. Are we supposed to stand against abortion, or are we not? Are we supposed to stand up for justice or not? Are we supposed to stand up for the things that God has prioritized in his scriptures or not? And we can, not that we're supposed to have a negative overall atmosphere within our church, always standing against something. But part of our job is to go throughout the world showing the people what the scriptures say. We talked talked in Sunday school today with my class Well, what is sin? Well, sin is disobeying what God has said. It's disobeying God. Well, how do we know what God has said? Well, He said it in the Bible, and we need to learn it. So, part of our job as disciples, gospel spreaders, is to one, go show the world that it's already condemned, because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, and because they have disobeyed the law of God. And are therefore worthy of the wrath of God. That is part of the Gospel. And we need to show the world that the Kingdom of Heaven is shut up to them until the day when they might actually put their faith in the saving power of Jesus Christ. We are are invited in by Christ into His work of spreading His Gospel and His Kingdom throughout the world. He is still the Lord of it. He is still the king of this kingdom. But he invites us in to this world's domination. And I say that just because it's terminology that we see in Genesis chapter 1. But really, it's just taking the gospel of the kingdom throughout the whole world, trying to make disciples wherever we go. John 10.9-10 say, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. We're supposed to go and tell people where the shepherd is. We're all lost sheep until we come back into the fold of the shepherd. So it is defined, and we see it defined in the Catechism, that the keys of heaven and hell is that which would open the door to the world. That is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to say it a different way, What the keys of heaven and hell cannot mean is that God has relinquished all his power and rights to the church. That man or his traditions has the ultimate power over a person's salvation or damnation. That's what it cannot mean. We've already seen that throughout the scriptures, particularly the first portion of the sermon. It cannot mean that God is giving us the right to save people or to actually condemn people. It cannot mean that. Because we see it too profoundly in the scripture that that is in God's hands still. We water, we plant, but God gives the growth. We've seen that already. But what it does mean is that the church, as the body and bride of Christ, is the vessel by which God sovereignly spreads his fame throughout the earth by means of the Holy Spirit to either be accepted by faith or rejected. So what now? I hope this has helped this become clearer. But what now? I know that some of these elements are still. We might have to go over this <laughs> some more another time. But what now? We must enter into the new creation commission where Christ calls his newly created body to be fruitful and multiply. We are to take the keys that Christ has given his church and start unlocking doors. (laughs) Take your key. Start unlocking doors. We have the key. It's the gospel. It's the commission. And Jesus says, all power and authority are given to me. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go. Go. Make disciples. I'm with you. I'm doing this with you. I am the one who has all the authority over everything. And I'm going with you. If God is for us, who can be against us? (laughs) All things work together for our good. For those who love God. For those who are called according to His purpose. That's the God who's going with us. He has called us to share in His authority. Going with us to fulfill His desires and His will on the earth. Romans chapter 10, verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We need people with keys to go out and actually open doors for people. Christ has given us his key and has given us his power, his authority to go out and actually open these doors. Which we go out claiming with Paul in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So when we all come to the end of this conversation, do you realize that you have been given a portion in God's inheritance, in God's authority, in God's power. Sometimes we are so afraid of becoming too much like some other religion that takes this too far the other way, that we don't actually acknowledge what we do actually have. A portion of the power and the authority of Christ to go throughout the world opening doors for people Spreading the fame, the glory, and the kingdom of God everywhere. We have been given that. And we need to take advantage of it in bold confidence. Not being ashamed of the Gospel. People will disagree with it. People will shut those doors. People will not walk through those doors. The kingdom will remain shut against them. Not everybody is going to leave. But that's not our job. We water, we plant. God gives the growth. It's not your fault if somebody doesn't respond. Well, unless you're a big jerk, well, then it is your fault. (laughs) But God gives the growth. God makes the spiritual stuff happen. So we must not try to establish a building on a foundation other than that which Christ has laid. We rest on the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. We're not saying because I'm talented, then I have the power to do this because I'm talented and I have the ability. No, we have the foundation. Just as Paul was claiming, we have the authority we have the foundation that's already been laid. And if we try to lay some other build on some other foundation, then that stuff's going to be burned up. But everything that is laid on the foundation that's already been laid, whether you think it's an efficient use of your time or not, well, that's actually going to reap a reward, whether you think it will or not, in some way, shape, and form. So we look at the foundation that has been laid. We say, how can I build on this foundation of Jesus Christ? You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. How can we take that and build on that in this world? Not by the power and the wisdom of human ability, but by what God has given us, along with his power and his authority to go and build throughout the earth. Let's go and do that however it is that God has equipped us to do that. God, give us grace and power and the energy to go out as Your people, as You have called us as Your people, energized by the Spirit, motivated by the love of God, for the sake of the fame of Your Son, Jesus Christ. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.